It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Eagle, the podcast that breaks down what's happening in the world and how we got here. On today's episode... I blame myself for what happened. In a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the top Iranian general has been killed in an airstrike while leaving the Baghdad airport. But first, here's what happened in the world this week. Early Wednesday morning, Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 crashed shortly after takeoff from Tehran's airport. U.S., British, and Ukrainian officials theorized that this was a mistaken hit by an Iranian missile. The Iranian government vehemently disputed that theory, though, saying in a press conference on Thursday, what is obvious for us and what we can say with certainty is that no missile hit the plane. But when Ukrainian officials discovered the remnants of a missile at the crash site, the Iranian government had no choice but on Friday to admit that it was the consequence of a Iranian missile that had hit it mistakenly. This prompted outrage, not just in Ukraine and Western countries, but among Iranians themselves. The victims of the plane crash included 82 Iranians, 63 Canadians, 11 Ukrainians, 10 Swedes, 4 Afghans, 3 Germans, and 3 British nationals. Taiwan held presidential elections on Saturday, and the incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen, won a second term in a landslide victory. Ms. Tsai had established herself as someone who did not want to compromise Taiwan's de facto independence. In a speech about the Hong Kong protests in June, she had said, anyone who tries to undermine Taiwan's sovereignty and democracy or use them as political bargaining chips will fail. This was in contrast to her rival from the KMT party, which favored closer ties with China. So her victory is a pretty big setback to China, which has never recognized Taiwan's independence. Uh, In fact, most countries around the world don't recognize Taiwan's independence simply because if they formally do so, China refuses to have diplomatic relations with that country. 
The international fugitive, Carlos Ghosn, the former CEO of Nissan who fled Japan a couple of weeks ago, started enthusiastically courting the press in the last week, holding a somewhat rambling press conference and doing a bunch of interviews with various media outlets afterwards. One thing he still hasn't revealed, though, is how he escaped Japan. He spoke scathingly of the Japanese justice system and the severe restrictions that were placed on him during his bail, like not being able to communicate with his wife. In response, the Japanese prosecutors made the somewhat valid point that the reason such heavy restrictions were placed on him is because he was deemed a flight risk, which is obvious from the fact that he actually fled and illegally departed from the country. Uh, we all knew that. Uh, I, knew uh, I talked well. about this whole crazy story in last week's episode, so if you haven't listened to it yet, please check it out. And the big news here in the UK this week was the announcement by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex that they will step back as senior royals and work to become financially independent. This was announced in a statement and also on their Instagram account. This is a pretty unprecedented move, so it's unclear what it means for the royal family exactly. The only analogy that's been brought up so far was uh, the abdication of the throne by King Edward in 1936. It's brought, as you'd expect, mixed reactions from the public. Some people praise the couple for being a breath of fresh air in the monarchy and trying to modernize it a bit and others condemned them for the way the announcement was handled. Um, according to the BBC, no members of the royal family, including the Queen, were told of this decision until it was announced, and Buckingham Palace is said to be disappointed. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry were the subject of really severe media scrutiny since their wedding, and for a while they had been complaining of the toll that this has been taking on them. It seems that Meghan has returned to Canada following the announcement, and the couple says they're going to aim to split their time between North America and the UK. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. For the past couple of weeks, tensions between the US and Iran have been approaching breaking point. The biggest news last week, of course, was the assassination of Qassem Soleimani, Iran's top military general by US forces. But that assassination was just the culmination of a series of tit-for-tat strikes that had actually started the week before. So it all started on Friday, December 27th. The militia group Qatab Hezbollah attacked the K-1 military base in an Iraqi city, and this killed an American contractor and wounded several American Iraqi personnel. Hezbollah has ties to Iran, but Iran denied orchestrating the attack. This infuriated the U.S., and in return, the U.S. military carried out airstrikes on five sites in Iraq and Syria, targeting this Iran-backed militia. This, in turn, infuriated a lot of Iraqi Shiite militiamen and their supporters, and hundreds of them broke into the American embassy compound in Baghdad, smashing a main door and setting fire to a reception area. This, in turn, infuriated President Trump, who authorized the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani, and whether it was intentional or not, also took out um, a leader of a Shiite militia, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, and six others in a Baghdad airport. This, in turn, infuriated Iran, who responded by launching attacks on Iraqi bases that were housing U.S. forces, and that infuriated Trump again, who on Friday, January 10th, announced more sanctions against Iran. 
The news is changing so rapidly that it's hard to know what's going to happen next. But it seems fair to say that while most of the world was watching in horror as Iran and the U.S. seem to be stepping closer to an all-out war, tensions are somewhat easing such that an imminent war seems at least a little bit less likely. To understand how we got here, it's important to know that while the U.S. and Iran are thankfully not in a conventional war yet, they've actually been involved in a sleuthish shadow war for over 40 years, you could say. But why? Why are the U.S. and Iran on the brink of war now, and why are they enemies in the first place? Well, to understand that, we have to go back even further than 40 years. We have to go back, in fact, to 1953. This is the British series Pathé, reporting the events at the time. Iran have taken a dramatic double twist. Forced to flee his palace in Tehran, the Shah and his queen arrive in Rome after an alleged attempt by the Imperial Guard to arrest Dr. Mossadegh and a refusal by the Shah to dissolve Parliament at Mossadegh's request. So in 1953, the CIA of the U.S. and the U.K. both supported a coup to overthrow the two-day Communist Party that was led by Mohammad Mossadegh and restore the Shah, basically the king, to full power in Iran. The problem with this, among other things, was the Shah turned out to be an oppressive autocrat. He employed a ruthless secret police to suppress dissent, and 1975 abolished the Iranian two-party political system and replaced it with just one party called the Resurgence Party that was supporting the Shah. And after decades of frustration, things finally exploded in 1979, the Iranian Revolution. It's important to remember that the Iranian people were frustrated with their corrupt Shah for decades. And the revolution wasn't entirely a religiously oriented revolution, but we remember it today as one motivated by religion because the spark that ignited the revolution was an article that was published in an Iranian newspaper that was critical of Iran's religious leader, Ayatollah Khomeini. At the time, Khomeini was actually in Paris, but when the revolution broke out, he returned and basically took over Iran. The new government that was set up was one that would put at the head of state the spiritual leader, or now called the supreme leader. There would be a president and a parliament, but any of the decisions made by the president or parliament could be overturned by the supreme leader. So it's a strange kind of constitution that actually gives the supreme leader more power than the monarchy in a constitutional monarchy. So the disgraced U.S.-backed Shah was forced to leave Iran, but there was a question for a while of where he was going to go. U.S. officials debated for quite a while whether or not to allow the Shah to come to the U.S. Some people said this is what the U.S. owed the Shah after 37 years of supporting him. Other people said it could risk American safety if it seemed like the U.S. supported the Shah. But finally what decided it was the Shah was actually diagnosed with cancer and he was recommended to go to a New York specialist for treatment. So finally, President Jimmy Carter granted him permission to come to the U.S. That move proved to have disastrous consequences. This flag was apparently taken from someone's office inside the United States Embassy. It was burned Tuesday evening outside the embassy's gates. To the Iranian demonstrators who set fire to it, this was a symbol of victory. Two days earlier, several hundred young people, mainly students at Tehran University, had taken over the embassy. We are not occupiers, they said. We have thrown out the occupiers. 
But instead of chasing all the Americans out of the compound, the Iranians imprisoned them in a building somewhere on these grounds. They have been hostages ever since. That was ABC News at the time. Basically, the Iranians feared that with the Shah entering the U.S., the U.S. would try to unite with the Shah and place him back in power in Iran. So they seized the embassy in Tehran. There were 52 hostages in all. And in the end, they were kept hostage for 444 days. They weren't released until 1981. So this really marks the official deterioration of U.S.-Iran friendly relations, you could say. But also just the Iran revolution and the ousting of the U.S.-backed Shah made it pretty clear that the U.S. and Iran would not be getting along in future. And indeed, this was just the beginning. I blame myself for what happened. I was a sergeant of the guard. I was ultimately responsible for the security of that BLT that morning. We have a bulletin from the Pentagon on the explosion in Beirut at the U.S. Marines barracks. Then I heard the rev of an engine behind me. A truck loaded with explosives broke through a gate into the lobby of a building in Beirut occupied by Marines. I saw the truck come to a stop, dead center of that lobby. Dead silence in the lobby. You could hear a pin drop. And the next thing I saw was a bright orange flash. That was NPR. In the end, 241 U.S. Marines were killed when a truck filled with explosives crashed into the Marine barracks. At first, it wasn't clear who was responsible for the attack. It was in Lebanon, after all. So even though some people believed that Iran was involved somehow, Iran had acted really cleverly. They acted through a proxy and left no clear evidence of direct involvement. In the end, it was determined that it had probably been orchestrated by what would become Lebanese Hezbollah, a Shia Islamist political party and militant group that's heavily backed by Iran. But because it was unclear if Iran was really involved or not, the Reagan administration ultimately decided not to retaliate against Iran in any way. And this moment is really important because it created kind of a blueprint for how Iran would handle the U.S. going forward. The U.S.'s military budget is 50 times the military budget of Iran. So if Iran tries to take on the U.S. directly, it's hopeless. There's no chance that they'll succeed. But what they learned in this attack is that employing proxies is a really effective strategy because it gives them plausible deniability. And after all, neither the U.S. or Iran really want to take each other on directly. The reason that the Reagan administration never officially accused Iran of being behind the attack in 1988 was because if they did, they would have to take Iran on directly. They would have to retaliate, and they really didn't want to. So Iran learned that this is a strategy they should employ, that they can fund terrorist groups and proxy groups all over the world to attack U.S. forces and U.S. interests, and they'll be able to have plausible deniability when these attacks take place. But in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the Iranians started looking for ways to bolster their own military power by embarking on a new project, nuclear weapons. In 2003, the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, basically the world's nuclear weapons watchdog, visits Iran and sees that the country has already set up a pilot nuclear power plant. They already have centrifuges and batches of uranium. In 2006, Iran announces that they have perfected the process of enriching uranium. 
Now, Israel, a longtime adversary of Iran, is a likely target for any nuclear weapons Iran would create because they're a near neighbor and they've been enemies forever. So Israel goes to President Bush and requests permission to bomb this nuclear power plant. President Bush denies the request and asks Israel to basically hold on a bit because they have another idea in the works. I kind of love this next story because it's devious and it's interesting and it shows that Iran is definitely not the only player in this shadow war that's willing to use sleuthish methods. So basically all throughout the late 1990s and early 2000s, the U.S. was experimenting with a new kind of weapon, cyber attacks. And they developed finally a piece of malware that they termed Stuxnet. It's likely that Stuxnet was actually transported on a USB stick and needed to be installed in person by someone at the nuclear power plant. So likely it was handed off to a mole that the U.S. had inside the nuclear facility. What was really ingenious about Stuxnet was it didn't initiate its sabotage at the facility immediately. Instead, it just sat there and monitored the normal activity for the plant for a few months and stored all of that data. And the reason it did that is because once it initiated its sabotage sequence, when it started taking out the gas and the centrifuges, the malware was able to send the recordings of the previously okay activity to monitoring stations. So to the engineers monitoring the plant, it seemed like everything was normal until it was too late to fix anything. So in this way, Stuxnet was able to operate in the nuclear power plant for three years. It was finally discovered in March 2010 when a new version started spreading not just to different computers at the power plant, but actually to any Windows machine in Iran. So eventually it was discovered by an antivirus company. But the interesting thing about dropping a cyber weapon on your enemy is unlike a conventional weapon that detonates and then it's left in pieces, a piece of malware is delivered to your enemy whole and intact. So it's possible to take that piece of malware and reverse engineer how it was made and create your own cyber weapon, which is exactly what Iran did. So obviously this sleuthish malware method was not going to take out Iran's nuclear capabilities. So for years, things were kind of at a standstill. Until... Today, after two years of negotiations, the United States together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. This groundbreaking deal was called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, but it's usually just referred to as the Iran nuclear deal. It was signed between Iran and the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, which is China, France, Russia, United Kingdom, and United States, plus Germany, uh, together with the European Union. The deal basically said that for the next 15 years, Iran would have to drastically reduce its nuclear program. So they would not be able to enrich uranium past a certain point that was necessary for it to become weapons-grade uranium. A lot of its nuclear facilities were either taken out or replaced with something that wouldn't be able to create a weapon. And they also had to agree to frequent inspections by the IAEA to make sure that they were keeping up their end of this deal. In return, the U.S. agreed, along with their partners, to lift some crippling sanctions against Iran. 
Iran was able to resume selling oil on international markets and use the global financial system for trade. And for a while, this deal seemed to work. Um, there was no evidence that Iran was violating the treaty and trying to reignite its nuclear program. But there was one person who was uh, skeptical of the deal. So I've been doing deals for a long time. I've been making lots of wonderful deals, great deals. That's what I do. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. In May 2018, President Trump officially pulls the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal and reimposes sanctions targeting Iran's oil exports. This sends the Iranian economy into a terrible recession. And in response, Iran begins a counterpressure campaign. So in May and June 2019, some explosions hit oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman, and the U.S. accuses Iran of these attacks. And in June, Iranian forces shoot down a U.S. military drone. And in July, Iran finally starts to roll back some of its commitments under the nuclear deal. And this is basically what gets us to today. Iran is slowly stepping back from its commitments in the nuclear deal. The Trump administration has imposed increasingly harsh sanctions on the country. And Iranians are really suffering as a result and trying to find ways to retaliate. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Siegel. Thanks for listening. Uh, 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 u